If humans were doing this, it would never work. What they achieved with Big Dog is insane. We're just going to sit here and we'll find some way to hijack the pizza delivery droid. That droid has a personality. It has a concept of its own existence. And now, your host, Marcus Martin. Yes, welcome to the show. You're listening to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. In this series, we'll be looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the realm of sci-fi and meeting some of the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, science fiction writer and author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. And this week, we're delving into the world of droids. Joining me are two fantastic guests hailing from the sci-fi universe. Repping the land of science, we've got Charlie Hausago. He's a multi-talented man, actor, musical theatre genius, but most importantly for us today, he's literally designing and building the robots of the future. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hi, Marcus. How are you doing? I'm great, buddy. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. You are in the final year of a robotics PhD. Can you just give us a very quick summary as to what it is you're studying? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to explain what I do is I make robots see things. My field is called spatial AI, which is artificial intelligence making sense of a 3D environment. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Computers started out in a 2D realm on screens. Now we're obviously bringing them into the 3D world. You're kind of an essential middleman in that transition. Sorry, that sounds really demeaning. You're doing something highly <laughs> no, complex. No, no, no. I, mean, I, I couldn't even begin to describe and I've just put you down <laughs> as a middleman. I'm so sorry. I'll just be recording with my robot assistant on the next podcast I go on. <laughs> the first thing you'll automate out of a career is hosts. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Make It Soon. I am Charlie's robot, and we are now going to talk about the mythical topic of human beings. <laughs> I feel like we just let back into the 1970s into a really experimental branch of the radiophonic workshop. It's sort of like a, an early radio for Isaac Asimov recording. <laughs> hey, which brings me on perfectly to our second wonderful guest. Joining us from the galaxies of sci-fi literature, we have fellow science fiction author, enthusiast and space pundit extraordinaire, Charlie New. Welcome, Charlie New. Yeah, thanks. You did a master's in sci-fi literature, is that right? Yes, it is. I spent a lot of time looking at robots and how they're represented in film and literature, which is great fun, super niche, no practical real world use except for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, hey, who knew? It's all come good. So obviously it's madness to have two people with the same name on a remote recording session. So for basic pragmatism, we're going to go with the very cryptic nicknames of Charlie H and Charlie New. <laughs> which one's me? If you take that sort of tone, we're going to have a real uphill battle today. It's, it's going to be rough. <laughs> you've, you've done this to yourself, Marcus. You've done this to yourself. <laughs> Often the case. You pick the guest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, you know, I chose my own punishment. Really, we should kick off with a definition of what a droid is. Charlie knew. How is a droid different to a robot? And how is a droid different to an android? Because if an android is a droid or a robot that's shaped to look like a human, how much does it have to look like a human? Does it have to actually look like a human in terms of flesh? Is it just a mm -hmm. robot that walks on two legs? Ooh. So then is a droid any kind of robot that can move around in a space that isn't a biped? Where are we drawing the lines? Interesting. The first thing that immediately made me shiver was when you said a robot made of flesh, which isn't something I think <laughs> about on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm still getting used to that little dog Sony released in the late 90s that could do like a backflip. And I was like, that's cute at arm's length in another country. We have some terrifying news for you if that scares you, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> So, Charlie News, the first thing that springs to mind when you say fleshy robots is Channel 4 AMC did a series called Humans. Yeah. Did either of you guys see that? Yeah, yeah. I loved that series. I watched all of it, I think. I wrote about it because it was great fun. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out if you've not seen it. And Westworld is the other big example. Yes. How can I forget Westworld? I digress because this week we're not talking about humanoids but, at no. all, are we? <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie N, please continue with your outline of what a non-humanoid droid is. <laughs> well, this is the question, isn't it? So, if we're ruling out things that stand on two legs and are made to resemble humans, so let's say for the moment we rule out 
like C-3PO because he's kind of meant yeah. to be a synthetic man, even though he's like very metallic. Yeah. Then I'm sort of picturing anything that is an indiscriminate shape, like a rectangle or a blob that moves around mm-hmm. or things that mm-hmm. are maybe shaped like animals. Because when we think about putting robots out there in the world, we have a natural Ooh. example of how things move around in their environment. At what point does a robotic arm stop being a robotic arm and be a droid? That's probably more my question for Charlie H. Oh, Charlie H, go on. I think we're straying rapidly into the topic of agency and automation. Can you shed some light? I don't think I could say there's a unified answer. Almost the more interesting question is the distinction between what is a computer, what is a machine, and what is a droid. In my mind, droid, it's the bit of technology that sits between being a computer and being a machine. If you consider a machine as a device that does a repetitive physical mechanical task, so something like a water pump is a machine. It does one kind of task and it does it over and over again. Love it. We're straight into the sexy end of (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. I mean, there are probably more glamorous examples. Yes, I'm sure they've got sewage pumps, bike pumps. Yeah, a sewage pump, air pump. Uh, And a machine can also be something that is operated by a human to enhance physical capability. Oh, like those huge gun machines they sit in in the final Matrix film. Like that, or like a crane. (laughs) Oh, right. Mm. (laughs) A less sexy Yeah, you really are approaching it through the civil engineering lens. The authors are for the glamour. I'm here for the heavy dose of grim realism. You're kind of like, who will actually pay me to make a droid in the future? Oh, spoilers, the construction industry. Charlie New, did you have a quiz for us? I did have a quiz prepared. Oh, that's exciting. Oh no, I'm terrified. (laughs) How much sci-fi do you watch, Charlie H? (laughs) I do watch a fair amount, but I don't think there are many people who would necessarily want to watch a TV program about their job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've got sort of one-line quips and feel free to guess the droid from them. Oh, I love it. Droid quips. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the first one is, eccentric time traveller with too many faces is allergic to dogs. What's the solution? Is this a line that's been said by a droid or is this about... Oh, did you think it was things droids said? Oh, now I wish I'd done that. Yeah, I thought it was things droids said. Yeah, this is like a cryptic crossword. So are we supposed to just shout out the answer? Yeah. Is this K9? This is K9, yes. Ah, oh, Charlie H, you've you've smashed it. <laughs> Do you know what? My my first thought was Zaphod Beeblebrox, which is just not even he's not even a droid. <laughs> I was just like, oh yeah, two faces. And I was like, Hitchhikers had a joke about small dog. It's gotta be that <laughs> Okay, my expectations are plummeting for my score. Sarcastic rectangles bait human masters on long distance space travels. Sarcastic rectangles. Oh, hang on. I feel like that that could definitely be the robot out of Interstellar. He had a humour setting on a slider. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's really cool. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah, it's Tarzan Case from Interstellar. Oh, so great. Yeah, he was very sarky. The bit in that film where he folds into layers and runs super fast is the coolest visual moment in that movie. It's great. It's like being rescued by a Kit Kat. It is very cool, but Interstellar is a, a movie with many incredible visual moments. Huge vistas of space, like... <laughs> yeah, but none of them had a chocolate treat saving someone from the ocean. So it remains the highlight. <laughs> it was like Baywatch, but instead of Dustin Hoffman, you've got a <laughs> chocolate-coated wafer. It says so much about me that I would love to watch that version of Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Baywatch in the future. How great is that? Well, it would just be a slow-mo, <laughs> skimpy pistons jangling in perfect synchrony <laughs> across sand. <laughs> oh, just imagine C3 going a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I feel like he's more of a banana hammock kind of guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> really, R2? <laughs> a wedgie? <laughs> You're drowning again. <laughs> Uh, He's so unstable. I feel like he'd just fall over. It would just all be really ineffective. (laughs) Okay, question three. This is a bit outlet, so if you get this, I'll be impressed because it's not what's normally thought of as sci-fi media. Yeah. Known for his criminal activities, sheep rustler extraordinaire unravels under pressure. Oh, sheep rustler. Oh, is this uh, Wallace's trousers? Yeah, it's Wallace and Gromit. Yes, no way! <laughs> it's Preston from A Close Shave. Oh, oh it's Preston. Oh, I, I knew it was Wallace and Gromit. I thought it was um, his, his trousers. But yeah, it's the robot dog, isn't it? From- it's the robot dog. <laughs> 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 
Oh my goodness. That's incredible. That is like the nichest of niche. To, to call Wallace and Gromit sci-fi is pretty out there. I suppose it's technically correct though, isn't it? Like Claymation is an underexplored medium in the world of science fiction. <laughs> Right, question four. We're on a roll. I feel like Charlie's Charlie's doing better than Marcus. I, who's, who's counting? I'm counting. Who's <laughs> counting? Oh, no, yep, yep. Charlie H is counting. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> why would we not count? Yeah, no reason, guys. I'm, I'm on two and Marcus is on one. Okay, so the last one is robot rights activist Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a long-limbed metalhead. This is the one from Rogue One, yeah? No, but you're on the right path. No, it's, no, it's, it's Han Solo's robot in Solo. Yeah, it's from Solo. Yeah, it's like K... It's K-C... I can't remember his initials. <laughs> oh God, put us out of our misery. L3. That, and I think there's another bit to the name, but they just call her L3 over and over again. Sounds like where I used to study geography. Like L3. random classroom yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. The- uh, <laughs> second period is in L3. Okay, great. But she's the one who's like hitting on Lando and it's really weird. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? I did badly in that. That was a bad start. I'm actually kind of coming around to the idea where Charlie automates presenters in the future because that'll save me from this sort of (laughs) disgraceful (laughs) humiliation early on in the show. I should probably admit, I've not seen Solo Story. Oh. It's my favourite of the Star Wars films. I'm sorry, what? Controversial, I know Charlie that's hugely H. controversial. It's incredibly it? controversial. <laughs> and by the sounds of it, borderline offensive to Charlie N. Also, the thing is, I think I have an offensive Star Wars opinion in that The Last Jedi is probably my favourite Star Wars film. I don't know, Solo has this kind of Firefly vibe to it, which I like. Yeah. It's- but that's also a probably, probably out there opinion. Solo was, I'll be honest, not kindly received by the critics. Oh no, it, was, it certainly was not. <laughs> sort of like mindless fun which is just what l3 was looking for but lanza was having none of it ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go back in the room made a joke about a film i've not seen okay so charlie h where have we got to right now with our creation of droids and please if you know of sewage pumps just leave them out <laughs> you want real world droids yeah yeah exactly where are we at So there's kind of two spheres. There's the area which I work in, which is the personal domestic area. So robots and droids as a consumer product, Mm -hmm. which at the moment is pretty limited to robotic vacuum cleaners. Roomba! (laughs) DJ Roomba! (laughs) Roombas. Oh, I've got to push the branding here and sing the praises of the Dyson 360i because they sponsor me a lot in my PhD. So that's that's the corporate branding out of the way. that that name isn't as catchy as Roomba. Well, how about the new model, the 360 Heurist? Yeah, it rolls off the tongue. Other brands of robotic vacuum cleaner are available. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they all suck. Am I right? Yes, that's what they were designed to do. It's perfect. Uh, A robotic vacuum cleaner is the perfect intersection of what I was talking about before. It does one very simple mechanical task, which is vacuum. But then it's enhanced over the machine version in that you as a human don't have to operate it and push it around. It's a really good example of something that can operate in novel spaces that humans would normally have to navigate. What immediately made me think of when you talked about automating household things was when my partner and I, we went to Singapore last year and she spotted this electronic thing that just rocks your baby to sleep. If your baby starts crying, it senses it and it's just like, yeah, it's cool, I'll rock it. So you kind of strap your baby in and then it just gets lullabied by a machine. And I'm like, that looks amazing. 100% would love to raise my kid for a robot. I would like to sleep well, thank you very much. But I guess that doesn't count as a droid because it only does that. Well, this leads me nicely, actually, onto a point that I wanted to make sooner rather than later, which is what are droids actually for? Really, what droids are for and the reason that we make them and they're a desirable product or device is that they do boring jobs that we don't really like doing ourselves. And the reason then we prefer them not to look like people is because we use them as slaves and it would make us uncomfortable if they looked like human beings. Ooh. So it's much better to have your autonomous droid vacuum cleaner not look like a human. Because what it actually is, it's it's a slave that all it does is clean your floor. <laughs> like the robot in Rick and Morty that fetches butter. That's all it does. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's the uncomfortable comedic element in that that droid has a personality it has a concept of its own existence so you get into a morally gray area 
Yeah, what you're saying is we're deliberately dehumanizing them, even though we are creating them with skill sets so that we don't feel guilty. So actually, that's kind of almost even worse than the butter fetching one that has a personality you can see. Yeah. What we're doing is choosing to hide it rather than confront that potential. I mean, we don't feel guilty about using like our fridge or our kettle or our toaster, right? No, and you shouldn't feel guilty about using your robotic vacuum cleaner either. It doesn't have a personality. It doesn't have sentience. From a commercial standpoint, Charlie, you touched on the fact that a large chunk of drone research is in the consumer sector. As a consumer, would you rather buy a hoover that just rattles around from A to B inside your house or one that seems to get really excited about doing the hoovering and comes over kind of begging to do hoovering. And then you ruffle its hair and you're like, ah, go on then, you scamp, have a hoover. And it's kind of like you're taking the dog for a walk. I would much rather buy the first than the second. Really? You wouldn't want a hoover that behaves like a dog? Then I'd feel bad about making it do the hoovering all the time. (laughs) The novelty for one item, like a hoover, might be interesting. But imagine if, like, your hair straighteners talk to you. or like Yeah, you'd end up living in the Beast's castle from Beauty and the Beast, where all your, like, furniture randomly talks to you. That's fantastic! Oh my gosh! Yeah! (laughs) We're both on board immediately. I just, this wonder world that is your house. That does sound great. <laughs> that would be so irritating. No, I love that. Charlie N, I think you've just stumbled across a genius thing. If we we're in Dragon's Den right now, I would be investing. Hair straighteners that talk to you, that sounds perfect. <laughs> like you're getting ready for a night out. You're not sure about who you can see. You're not feeling great about yourself. This would be like, you got this girl. You be you. It would make you feel amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love that. So I did some reading about like Paro, the robotic seal that they were using in care homes. It's like this robotic seal pet that purrs responsibly and it's to help older people, particularly I think with Alzheimer's. But it's that whole thing of like, if you're creating things that simulate personality or that simulate either being a person or being an animal, and then you put them in the hands of the most vulnerable in our society, particularly those at the beginning and end of life. So if they get mixed up with care roles those are potentially the people with the least ability to fully understand what they're seeing, how real it is. And so then we come into some slight ethical problems. So for us as like adults who would be like, okay, we clearly know that, for instance, Mm. my Hoover doesn't actually have a personality. I've just given it a personality as a fun gimmick. Where do we draw the line with people who maybe don't have that capacity? That's really interesting because it's not just old vulnerable people who are necessarily being deceived. And admittedly, the deceit is, I think, with good intentions in the care home context. Uh, you mm. know, Japan has an aging population. They're trying to solve it in a compassionate way. Although, actually, interesting, I read a meta-analysis of that study that you came across, Charlie, which found that there was no benefit when they, they did a control, like another group did a control study on that oh, and found that just giving the old people a teddy bear shaped like the seal that had the same proportions had the exact same, same therapeutic benefit. benefit, which is unfortunate given how much they spent on making a robot seal that <laughs> you could just yes. give them a stuffed virgin. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, it's not just old people that are vulnerable to that level of deception because have you guys seen the film Eye in the Sky. It's got Helen Mirren and it's about a drone strike and whether or not they can do it. But one of the interesting things is they use a drone in there that is shaped like an insect. So maybe it's like shaped like a beetle or something. Yeah, and they send it into, oh, I don't know. They send it into the guy's house. Yeah. And obviously he doesn't bat an eyelid because it looks like a bug. So then you've got people with their full mental faculties about them being deceived by something that has been designed to imitate its environment, which comes back to what you were saying, Charlie N, about us drawing our inspiration from how natural things move when we create droids. So when we're thinking of where we're at currently with droids, the thing that springs to my mind is always those pizza delivery bots you've got rolling around in like New Zealand and San Francisco. Yes, this is again the consumer field. They're the future I want. I love the idea of a hot, delicious meal rolling towards me. Just 24-7. That's all it's for. And I stand by this. If they gave it a wagging tail, I would dig that. (laughs) Charlie N, what's the word for... It's not anthropomorphizing, but it's animalizing. Is that a word? Metamorphizing? Oh, yeah. I feel like there is a word for that, but I can't remember what it is. Dogifying. But yeah, giving it animal characteristics. I think dogifying is a lot catchier, so I'm going to go with that. (laughs) If the pizza delivery robot is out on the street, obviously that's going to take up our space and our infrastructure. Would you kick the pizza delivery droid if it was in your way, if it also looked like a sort of sad-eyed dog? (laughs) Probably not in quite the same way. In Manchester, there's a bike brand where you rock up, you scan it, and you can rent that bike just through an app. And they tried it in a few cities, and it's very popular in Cambridge. There are like three different companies doing these things. I think they tried it in Manchester. The company said they had to pull out because people just throw them in the river. Like, why? Why would you do that? And I feel like if Manchester gets a pizza delivery system as well, it'd just be like a lot of floating pizzas. 
Well, you just break in to get the pizza. I mean, you know it's carrying pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do you, do you go around attacking delivery drivers? <laughs> well, now that you mentioned it. <laughs> but is that because the delivery driver is a person? I just want to clarify, I don't steal things generally, but if I did... <laughs> You can just see it, can't you? People are being like, we're just going to sit here and we'll find some way to hijack the pizza delivery droids and then just run off with the pizzas. It's a bit different to like ambushing a delivery man, tying him up and taking his stuff. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay yeah. I, feel, I feel like there's a great cult movie concept in here. I want to see the fly on the wall film of a gang of pizza thieves who rob delivery robots in San Francisco. <laughs> see, on the contrary, Charlie H, I don't think it's going to be a cult sci-fi film. I think it's going to be a reality TV cop show. And in five oh, years' yes. time, we're going to go to Charlie N's house oh, and they'll, they'll raid her basement and find a bunch of Domino's <laughs> droids handcuffed to radiators with just with, with empty pizza ovens. <laughs> I like to imagine a world in which you've got these pizza delivery bots from rival firms all beating the same neighborhoods and they actually kind of start to fight a little bit. You could do it like a nice mafia style film. But <laughs> yeah, it'd be like Papa John's is taking out a hit on Just Eat or whatever. <laughs> well, you completely spin it. You do the Romeo and Juliet where the competing delivery droids fall in love. <laughs> the Capulets with the garlic sauce and the Montagues with the stuffed crust. <laughs> So a stormtrooper, a Jedi, and a Wookiee walk into a cantina bar. And the Jedi says, these are not the droids you are looking for. The stormtrooper says, these are not the droids I am looking for. And the Wookiee says, because that's literally all they ever say in those movies. I mean, the galaxy's hardest fighters, but laziest language students. <laughs> also, the Wookiee did a lot of pre-drinks before they set out. You can make a better punchline happen. All you've got to do is head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. All donations will go towards something funnier for next season. That's makeitsoon.com slash donate. Charlie H, can you give us a quick outline of how the hell robots, droids in particular, can see and understand the world? There's multiple steps along this pipeline. The first is collecting data, which can be as simple as putting a video camera on your robot. I'm sorry, Charlie H, I pictured that same Domino's pizza droid with the GoPro base jumping. <laughs> I just love the idea that we give them cameras and then all they do is just upload their holidays to YouTube. We're like, man, these droids have it made. But we can now do the horror film version of the Delivery Bot movie where we just see the Delivery Bot GoPro's camera oh! feed as it's kidnapped and locked in Charlie N's basement. Every now and then, Charlie N comes in with a pack of AAA batteries, which she feeds to it. <laughs> she disappears. <laughs> and the room goes dark again. <laughs> wow, I've really passed myself in a particular role here, haven't I? Where was it? You need some kind of sensor, usually a video camera. There's then LiDAR, which is the 360 scanning technology. You don't know what everything is. You just collect raw data of how far away things in the world are. Okay, so it's kind of like sonar. Yeah, I mean, it's LiDAR. It's just light instead of sound. But I guess the big difference is density. So in a sonar, you like you do your full sweep and you might get like one point or two points. Obviously, if you're doing that kind of sweep with light in the world, you'll get points pretty much everywhere. Do a constant scan to see how far away the nearest thing is in every direction. It doesn't tell you what the thing is, it just tells you there's something. That's spatial sensing, collecting the data, and then the understanding comes next in the pipeline. So how do we start to understand, or how do droids make sense of the data they've collected? I mean, this is the big question. This is really where we need to start talking about artificial intelligence and deep learning, as those are really the technologies that power that kind of understanding. In essence, the way robots and droids make sense of this kind of information is we give them a bunch of examples and say, this is how you do it. Now, guess based on these examples. We still don't really understand how humans do this. The way humans understand the world is amazing and phenomenal and incredibly powerful. Thank you, Charlie. And we still don't really understand how human beings do it. On behalf of humankind, thank you. I'm so sorry, the human race couldn't be here tonight, but I'm honoured to collect this award on their behalf. Humans seem to do this very, very efficiently. Like, you can walk into a new room and within seconds have a good understanding of all the things in that room and how you're supposed to interact with them. Robots, not even close to that level of understanding. Yeah, they'd walk in immediately see a mother-in-law and then start talking about ex-girlfriends you'd be like no you've completely misjudged this come on <laughs> right go back back to dominoes you're not ready for this 
No, no, I was, I was just trying to find a way of articulating it without having a video. Because I, I get yeah, it from no, the it's video. Hard. It's, really it's, hard without a video. it's really hard to explain verbally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but don't worry, I feel between right, us, so... we've really nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, we'll come back in. We need to go on a tangent from the world to individual images. Yeah, here we go. So Charlie, I feel like at this point we need to go on a tangent from the world to individual images. <laughs> How do you like that? I thought that was pretty smooth. <laughs> to be clear, that will make the cut. This is it. It's happened. We're on to it. Okay, right. <laughs> right. Understanding the world is really hard as like one go to go, okay, here's a full 3D environment, make sense of all this environment. So what we tend to do as AI engineers is break it down into a smaller problem. We build an AI called a neural network. The first stage of the development is image classification. So here is an image of one thing. Tell me what is in this image. To start off with, you give a load of those to the network. The number that it will spit out at the end for each image is at first completely random. And then you tell it, these ones were right and these ones are wrong. And then it does maths back through the network to change its predictions until it gets closer to what the correct ones should be. And then you do this a lot. And eventually you get a network that will be correct for all of the images that you trained it on. And you hope that there is some kind of statistical commonality between the pictures that will mean that when you give it a picture it hasn't seen before, it gives you the right prediction. And it turns out this actually works pretty well. There is, in fact, a lot of overlap between cognitive animal behavior psychology and AI research, perhaps less so now than, say, 20 years ago. When K9 and Doctor Who were still hot to trot. What do you mean? Doctor Who is real hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is now. I think it's going to be peaks and troughs. All the people who watched the original Doctor Who, watched it as kids, went to university, studied about canine and animal brains, and then there was a lull, and Doctor Who's just come back, and now we're seeing the fruits of it again. Okay, so that points me towards a really interesting tangent that I want to go down, but I don't Let's think do we should go down it quite yet. So, so, so Oh, okay. We'll, we'll save so that. The tangent I want to go on, but we might come back to you later, is which way does causation go between science fiction and AI research? Excellent question. Spicy. Okay, I think let's have that chat now because we're there. Great fun. Let's have that chat now. Okay. Um, We haven't finished my previous point. (laughs) Your previous point, may it rest in peace. Charlie N, uh, can you answer Charlie H's provocation about the causal direction between sci-fi and reality? It's a question I'm fascinated by as well, particularly from Charlie's comment that as an AI researcher, he watches less science fiction now, whereas people in science fiction studies would say it's really important that computer scientists and people working in the field watch AI because we've got a history of thinking through some of the big ethical questions through sci-fi literature, but we also want the people making those machines to read them so that someone who's like never been through any AI in literature doesn't suddenly think, oh, it'd be a really great idea to create this thing. Then suddenly are like, oh wait, it has all these implications around privacy, around things like warfare. And we're like, yeah, if you'd read any science fiction book from the last few (laughs) years, you probably would have got a hint that we're thinking about these things. Um, (laughs) So I'm really, I'm actually really interested to know what Charlie thinks as someone who works in the field <laughs> about the correlation. What we're saying, Charlie, is for God's sake, don't build in a big red button. I know it's tempting. <laughs> don't do it, man. I wouldn't be an engineer making robots unless, as a kid, I had absolutely loved science fiction, which I did. And a lot of my imagination of what I think a robot could be or what we can do with them comes from reading science fiction. At the same time, a lot of science fiction that features robots doesn't ask questions actually about robots themselves, and they're used as a vessel to explore humanity and society rather than explore the actual technology that Mm. goes into a robot. One of the best things I've read is the wonderful Ted Chiang, the sci-fi writer. He wrote like a great little novella called Life Cycle of Software Objects, which is not about robots, but more about the development of AI. And that's fantastic because it takes the slow development of something that doesn't already look like an amazing kind of supercomputer or like an AI that functions like a person, but like these little sort of Tamagotchi virtual pets and how they might develop as humans interact with them and the way their personalities might build layer by layer. Mm. It's rarer to find sci-fi that takes that kind of approach rather than jumping straight to human equivalents. We use robots and droids in our media to be stereotypes and caricatures that we can use without them being offensive. That's really interesting. Both of you have sort of settled on the same point about exploring humanity through robots and how we depict them in fiction. What I find really interesting is the recent series of Picard 
the idea was that we had created an interesting sentient creature whose fixation was with becoming more human. Maybe is an underrepresentation in literature with characters who don't want that. I'm wondering if ultimately we depict that less because it's just it's unknowable. It's hard for us to imagine a pattern of thinking or an identity or a self radically different to how human beings think or experience the world, because obviously that's the basis we have for our experience. Have you guys read um, the Culture series by Ian M. Banks? Ah, it's on my always yeah. should have read it list. Same, like, so totally two, the same. They're amazing. He does these really good like short chapters in those books where the AIs of the ships talk to each other. Mm. He does this really good job of making their mindset and their perspective on the universe sufficiently different from humans. And it works because they're short chapters in between the chapters from a human perspective. Oh, that's super mm. cool. The ship minds in the culture series is like some of my favorite written AI perspective in fiction because you rarely get to see it. That's a great example, Charlie. And that immediately reminds me of something Charlie N is going to speak with more authority about than me. The ship in uh, Close and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers. I think it's called I was about Owl. To say, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, um, Charlie, take it away. Charlie H, I feel like you'd really appreciate it because it's, oh, it's fantastic. So it's the second book in Wayfarer's series. Wayfarer's um, series. It starts yeah. a long way to a small, angry planet. And in the first book, you have these AI that are like built into the ship. So the AI Lovey. And but the second book is, sorry, spoilers if anyone's planning to read it. Lovey gets rebooted and then put into a body kit. So the whole of the second story, pretty much about half of it, is told from the narrative perspective of this AI who finds herself, if we can use that term, in a body kit after having been designed for a spaceship. So there's a lot of really oh, interesting stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, like how she's designed, for example, to like be constantly in the ship with like thousands of cameras and able to see everything. And then how unsettling is for example to only have like one narrow forward frame of vision like like in a kind of human That's or body so cool. and it's so intelligent and interesting because it does talk about all this stuff like embodied cognition like how our experience of the world comes through our embodiment and to think of ai as disembodied is never actually true right it's always connected to some kind of like hardware yeah, cameras etc the things that that kind of agent or being would care about and would prioritize are so different to what we in our human experience would care about and prioritize. Even reading the first few pages of Closed and Common Orbit, you'd see like how, having artificial lungs, having never had a breathing system before, and then like oh, trying to hyperventilate yikes. and being like, what's happening? And then another human being having to coach them through breathing and how that will like relax and oh, that just be completely fascinating. alien. Yeah. This sounds so fascinating. Highly recommend. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. So the idea that you could you could be a ship and you could have a sense of personality and a sense of purpose in your ship form and not be considered a humanoid robot. But then we've got people in hospitals around the world with awful conditions like locked in syndrome, where you're fully paralyzed, but you're still self-aware and sentient. And that oh, doesn't make you any less human, but it does make you a lot less embodied. Did you guys see the Netflix series Love, Death and Robots? Oh my God, yes, it's no. fantastic. It's brilliant. So my favourite episode of that is an episode called Zima Blue, which I'm, I'm going to spoil. The artist Zima in Love, Death and Robots, he's a robotic artist and all of his paintings are a block of single colour called Zima Blue. And no one knows why he came to this colour and why he keeps making these ever bigger, like they, they become like solar system scale paintings in this one colour blue. And there's a reporter and journalist that goes to find out why and to watch his last great artwork. And it turns out that Zima, the artist, started life as a pool cleaning robot mm. whose only job was to clean dirt out of a pool. And the, the tiles of the pool are, were this colour, blue. And over his life, his creator gave him more functions and turned him into a person and turned him into a personality and interacted with him. But his entire life, he had built in this obsession with the color blue from the pool. And his final great artwork is he turns himself back into the pool cleaning robot and takes away his own sentience because yeah. the true revelation that he's come to is that he was happier like that than with the sentience that his creator gave him. Whoa. Okay, I'm seriously excited now because I've read that short story. I didn't know they made it into a short film. And now I'm like, no that's way. what I'm going to do next. Yeah. Watch it because it's beautiful. It's really thought provoking as well. Because when we were talking about giving robots personalities and giving them sentience, is that actually a thing that they would want depending on what their task is? I'm really keen to talk about one of the things that creeps me out the most from our current stock of droids 
and that is Big Dog. <laughs> and shall we say Big Dog's children, <laughs> which go forward to Spot at the moment. Spot the dog, love it. Well, Spot's been in the media a lot, controlling the coronavirus pandemic in Singapore. They've had Spot on the streets, making sure people are two metres apart. No. no. Oh, that sounds yeah. terrible. Oh my gosh. Oh, so <laughs> no, that's, many issues. that's literally the Black Mirror oh, no. episode. It's for our best interest, but then that's how iRobot well, started, right? Well, that's a right? terrible <laughs> phrase, isn't it? For your own good is the worst <laughs> phrase that any robotics engineer could possibly say. Exactly. It's like red blur. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what terrifies me about this dog is that it has essentially no face. It does kind of have a jaw, but the jaw is on the end of like an arm that comes out of the middle of its back. It's really freaky looking. That's not okay. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like that right there would be totally enough to keep me two meters away from the rest of the world. I mean, you put that on the street, I'm I'm never leaving my house again. Well done. Boston Dynamics, they were originally like a military funded company to create robots that could navigate difficult terrain. Conventional robot designs are like wheels or biped style, which is terrible at most things. Yeah, or like, you know, police have been using robots on cameras to go in and investigate hostage situations, but they are typically on like caterpillar tracks. Yeah, and they're really slow and on, on caterpillar tracks. And so you can see them coming from a mile away. <laughs> And so Boston Dynamics' mission is kind of like, let's make robots move better. How long ago was Big Dog? Big Dog six years ago? 2004, man. It's Wow, 16 years ago. It's crazy, yeah. So Big Dog was this big, chunky quadruped with reverse sprung legs. It can walk through terrain that robots before Big Dog just couldn't even think about traversing, like kind of complicated hills and forests and stuff and dirt and sand. And it's very, very mechanically impressive. I should say at this point that most of Boston Dynamics videos are not robots acting autonomously. They're like a robotic entity that is being controlled or following a pre-programmed routine. But I think that's very much where Boston Dynamics comes from because, again, they're originally a military company and I think there's still military involvement. So they want their robots to be controlled by an operator, which actually, in my mind, makes it not really a robot. It's a machine going back to my earlier definition. Mm. But this actually does give us a bit of peace of mind that Singapore is still under the control of humans. Yeah, the robotic dogs are not going to be chasing you anytime soon unless the human on the iPad wants them to. <laughs> but I mean, what, what they achieved with Big Dog is insane. First version, the 2004 version, could carry 340 pounds on its back, which is 150 kilograms, if you speak the Queen's English, while going at four miles an hour. Now, four miles an hour doesn't sound like a lot, but it's faster than human walking speed. And not many humans can walk with 150 kilograms on their back. Because that's like carrying two of your mates. They've got a newer one from like two years ago that can run faster than Usain Bolt, I think, and can also carry that amount of weight. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Maybe it's also just cool to talk about robots in space. Robots in space. <laughs> With a jingle. My end goal is to be a robotics engineer living on Mars, maintaining a robot population. That's like my life dream. Are you serious? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. You just complained about the latency on this recording. When you move to Mars, no, no, we are going to struggle. <laughs> It's the whole thing of putting droids in places that are inhospitable or inaccessible to humans. Like, that can be incredibly useful. And that's the cool thing about the Star Wars universe. You know, you can have R2-D2 hanging off the side of a ship doing repairs because he's a droid. So I think that is a really cool point that we should talk about, is robots being able to do things that humans cannot. Like, so that's okay. like undersea robots as well, space robots, mm. bomb disposal, military robots as well, where we can put them at risk without risking human beings. Going on the point of to what extent we're going to class something as a droid, whether it's still got a degree of human control, like the Boston Dynamics dogs are still human operated. But the Mars rovers, I feel like some of their functions are semi-automated, or at least they're pre-programmed. Yeah, so the Mars rovers are kind of like 50-50. I think it takes, what is it, seven minutes to send a command to the Mars rover. So a lot of the stuff that's on board is automatic, like the detection of a big pit in front of me that I might fall into. And a lot of it's daily jobs, like the gathering and inspection of uh, minerals and stuff, is all done autonomously. And then what the human beings do is send it kind of like a vague, these are your missions for today, instruction set. I think that's right. I'm not 100% sure. Super cool. The Voyager probes, do they count as droids? Because now they're out of human contact. We can't actually control them anymore. Voyager doesn't have any agency over its own movement, really. Yeah. They just kind of flung it out into space and then it carries on because if you set something moving into space, it doesn't stop until it hits something. <laughs> so I think that's the difference in that Curiosity has to actively make decisions about where it's going to go and what it's going to do, whereas Voyager just send it out and it sends information back to you. 
This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. Have you guys come across Cody, the nursing robot? It's right on the cusp between what we're talking about in terms of, do we want humanoid droids? What's the most famous humanoid robot? It's like that Honda one. Asimo. Asimo, yeah. Super friendly. They gave Asimo a big smile. How lovely. This thing, Cody, (laughs) is like pure function. It's got (laughs) caterpillar tracks, two arms, and basically no head or face or anything. (laughs) Oh my God. It looks like the robot from Friends. It looks like from Mac and Cheese, Joey's series. Oh my gosh, it looks like like Mac and Cheese. (laughs) (laughs) unbelievable and it's just like that but i mean what they've done is actually fantastic it's really impressive because they've created something that can assist nurses in tending to patients particularly with heavy lifting so that's great because that means you know patients are safer Mm. because they're in secure hands and nurses aren't damaging themselves in the process now this robot needs to be led like a child so you hold its hand and kind of walk (laughs) it forwards and it, it has enough awareness that it can avoid stuff beside you but it doesn't quite understand enough to be able to just go somewhere on its own so you follow it along and then you stand on one side and it sounds on the other side and you both can lift things and help kids along. It's really interesting. This, this is from Georgia Institute of Technology. I just found that as fascinating middle ground where they're just like, well, look, we're not trying to make this thing human, but it does need arms. So we'll meet you halfway. <laughs> it totally depends on the mindset as well, doesn't it? Are you building something to replace nurses or are you building something to assist nurses? I think we need humans in care roles. There's obviously an element of care that can't be translated. Let alone the challenges of robot intelligence. We're even further away from anything resembling robot empathy. We can do very basic like emotion recognition in the same way that we can do category recognition for other things. So we can see faces and predict the emotional state of this person. But I think mm. that's miles away from what any human being would call an empathetic so much effort goes into like simulating the most basic functions that we just have as human beings how do we build things that actually needed versus trying to spend loads and loads of time developing something that we can kind of already do? That feeds into my more general perspective on robotics as a whole, which is that we shouldn't be trying to make robots that are intelligent because humans do intelligence well. We should be trying to make robots that have high stamina, are strong, um, can do repetitive physical tasks that we know come with a myriad of health problems and psychological problems if humans try and do them. Look at the vegetable picking scenario where human beings who pick vegetables are underpaid, suffer like huge chronic back problems and stuff. That's where I think we should be putting our energies in terms of developing and creating robots. Yeah, yeah. So this is where there's an interesting dichotomy between robots that are interesting in science fiction and robots that are useful in the world. I quite like the idea of outsourcing all conflict to non-sentient droids. Not in the sense that we would use them in war zones, but in the sense that we would outsource the war zone and it would essentially just be like a battlefield. Everyone sends up their droids into space, you have it out there and whoever's got the most droids left at the end wins. Most military engagements are really the conflict of financial resources anyway. And the people are kind of the unfortunate casualty of a financial conflict. And generally, whoever's got more resources, more money will win the conflict. So we may as well just fight the wars with robots rather than humans. One of the ones that springs to mind is from Star Wars. I think it's episode one when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn are chasing Darth Sith. Was that it? Darth Maul? Chasing Darth Maul. Darth Maul. Darth Sith. Oh my word. <laughs> Sith Maul. God, I haven't thought about this film in so long. I actually generally, as a principal, try to bl- erase it from my mind. So this is quite hard work going back into the archives. I like episode one, but we've already decided that my style was a bit garbage. Your taste is offbeat on that <laughs> one, my friend. So they have these awesome droids that, do you remember, they roll and then they the just kind of like world. unfold. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of circular. They've got these balls of force fields around them and then they can fire off and they look kind of cool. Yeah, they're droidica. Droidica, yeah, the word amazing. Droidica. Yeah. That's what okay. I was saying. <laughs> Honestly, I, I thought it was just like hiccuping or something was going terribly wrong. Where are those droidicas? Or something like, <laughs> something like that. We're back to Charlie's 70s rendition in the radio comic workshop. I'm <laughs> <laughs> a terrible impressionist. Star Wars gives us lots of great examples of what Charlie was saying about what's useful and what's not useful. Because if you think about like C-3PO, for example, why would you need to build something that walks in the real world to act as a translator? The more realistic solution we're coming up at now is earpieces 
a more realistic or useful use of C-3PO is he's not embodied as a robot and then obviously he disappears as a character. And similarly, st- like stuff with the droidicas or even if you think about in the Mandalorian, the assassin robot, would you need to build them in these kind of shapes or would you just have, I don't know, like moving gun turrets? But then they're less interesting, right? Because the fun thing about the droidicas is they look a bit like beetles. <laughs> yes. They can roll and then arrive with their guns and objectively we're all like, that's really cool. Star Wars is good for robots. Like the droidicas are actually a really sensible robotic design. Oh, really? Obviously they're cool, but they're actually a very practical robot as well because they're a military security robot and they can move fast over a bunch of terrain because they can roll up into a ball. Then when they extend, they've got multiple feet so they can balance carefully on an uneven terrain, which is really useful if you're shooting a laser. It's really important to be able to balance. So actually, the droidicas are a really good robot design. I love it. You've talked about droidicas in the way that I talk non-ironically about my bike panniers when I'm just like, no, 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 they're not just cool, but actually really practical. Yeah, totally waterproof. <laughs> but you're just like, don't get me wrong, badass killing machines, but what balance? <laughs> No, but with the exception of C-3PO, pretty much all of the robots in Star Wars are pretty good and pretty realistic, and it's one of the reasons that I love Star Wars. The notable exceptions, of course, R2-D2 and BB-8's personalities. Mm. But actually, the original trilogy makes a point that R2-D2 is abnormal from other astromech droids. Yeah. Ah. And as a design for a robot to go around on the outside of a spaceship and fix things, R2-D2's like physical mechanical design is really well optimized for that. That's absolutely bang on then. When I was obsessing earlier about being like, I totally want a Hoover that has a wagging tail and I can just really love it and be affectionate about it. Actually, if you're in a space conflict and you need to send something out to fix the outside of the ship with incoming laser beams, the last thing you want is an emotional attachment to that. <laughs> you thing. don't want you don't want an attachment to it. <laughs> To go back to the vacuum cleaner, when in like two or three years it becomes out of date and there's a new model, you're not going to want to trade in the one you've got an emotional attachment to. No, I'll send it to the great vacuum cleaner farm in the sky, Charlie. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> this brings me on to swarm robotics. Droids are a fascinating example of that idea manifesting in sci-fi in a bunch of different ways. Charlie N, I know you particularly like the ones from The Matrix. I wouldn't say like. I think watching The Matrix as a teenager leaving me deathly terrified of them is probably more appropriate. (laughs) I have to confess, I don't actually know what swarm robotics is. Yeah, well, don't worry. What I've put is a bullet point saying, what the hell are swarm robotics and why do they matter? And then I'm hoping at this point Charlie H will speak. (laughs) It is impossible to talk about swarm robotics without talking about insects. If you think about ants or bees, they live in a society where each individual has very limited intelligence. But the swarm or the hive as a whole has a great amount of computational power through the way that the individual agents signal to each other. So in insects, this is scent trails. And if you put like an ant nest in a new environment and watch them explore, the ants will kind of all spread out in a disordered way. But very, very quickly, they'll start all following exactly the same path because the collective as a whole will have found the most efficient route. And this is why when you see videos of ants, they're all walking along exactly the same path. We do this in a different way in robotics, but the concept is the same in that each individual robotic agent has very limited intelligence. They communicate together normally through some kind of central processing hub to achieve a task efficiently. So the absolute best example of this is in warehouse robots. Most people would talk about Amazon here, but my favorite is actually Ocado. Ocado is a food logistics and delivery company who have the most advanced automated warehouses in the world. They've got big vertical stacks of like crates with products. And on top of the stacks, drive around like a fleet of little robot logistic things. And they all communicate with a central computer that routes the orders to the robots to say, okay, which robot needs to go and grab a which box and put it here to be packed the size of their warehouses is massively reduced because they don't need the space for humans to walk around and find products. Mm. And they can pack the products much more densely because the robots move faster and more precisely and, and accurately than human beings wandering through a warehouse. It's totally worth checking this out online if you're listening at home because videos are unreal. Hmm. And it's really interesting because it's like looking at it, it's kind of a series of train tracks but running in a grid formation. And these fantastic little droids have wheels on all of their sides so they can go in any direction but in straight lines. So it's kind of like moving along a chessboard. It's really fun. They've got two sets of wheels and the wheels lock up and down. So when they change direction, Hmm. they drive to a square and then one set of wheels goes up 
off the track and the other set of wheels goes down onto the track. I actually visited one of their warehouses in London a couple of months ago. And it's so surreal to stand at the top, like on there's an elevated walkway over the stack and to watch the robots move around. It really does look like each of them has this intelligent decision-making process, but really all that's going on is they're being sent a location to go to by like a centralized computer. But it looks like they're super intelligent. They're like stopping and waiting for each other at complicated intersections. And you're like, if humans were doing this, if there was a human controlling each one of these robots, it would never work. Well, specifically, if it was a British warehouse, it would be like, after you. So no, no, I'm terrible. So after you, after you. (laughs) (laughs) It would never get packed. The advantage that Swarm Robotics brings is that there's no confusion about decision-making. The central machine just makes the decision and then both robots know what the decision is. It's kind of like a beehive in that the queen bee controls all of the other bees. This kind of distributed intelligence comes from swarm intelligence in in insects. So we've gone from insects and locust swarms to warehouses for supermarkets in quite a short period of the history of robots. Yeah. Guys, I'm aware that we're very much at time. Charlie, can you just talk us through, I've seen I've seen a note here, taking my robot for a walk in the park. I want to I hear this. <laughs> I was recording a video last year. You've actually seen Mark, so I sent it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was great. Yeah. I wanted to explain how robots could see and how they understood the world. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to take my robot for a walk in the park and show what the robot was seeing in the park. But 60% of the robot is battery and it runs out really, <laughs> really fast. <laughs> what we ended up doing was just taking the head off the robot. So I was walking around <laughs> the park with the head of the robot on a stick and sending the outputs to a laptop. So I was walking around with like a laptop. Laptop on my shoulder, carrying the head of like a robot head on a stick in Hyde Park. Sort of looking like a very strange modern day pirate. (laughs) And the thing that you don't see in the the video, like the the actual educational video about this, is you don't see all the time, like all of the bits of video where people in the park just came up to me, like, "What the hell are you doing?" (laughs) Can you talk about these drone demo arena mishaps? We have an outreach demo that we've done in our lab. I'm a researcher at Imperial College. I love the way you said Imperial there. Imperial. (laughs) Man, I'm going to run a bubble bath later and just play that over and over. Imperial College. That is treacle in my ears. (laughs) We have a demo where we have a Roomba with basically a QR code on the back. I have a drone that follows it around. That really is like the Hunger Games for nerds, isn't it? (laughs) We have the interesting problem where everybody wants to drive the drone, but the demo only works if you drive the floor-based robot because the drone is doing target following. So it's kind of a badly designed demo for kids because kids are going, oh, there's a drone, I want to fly the drone. And then they go, here, have this controller drive the floor-based Roomba that's really boring. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. Charlie H, final anecdote. What's this assembly robot? but no disassembly oh. robot. Come on, what happened? what's the story? Okay, so you, you actually know about this already, Marcus, because I was ranting to you about this when I was doing my master's at Cambridge. Okay. So my master's project was this kind of evolutionary robotic system. So I had a robot arm that built small little cube robots that walked around. And so as part of the project, this thing had to build hundreds of little modular robots and test them and see how good they were. But I didn't realize that I only had a limited number of components to build the modular robots with. (laughs) So in order to run my hundreds of experiments of the arm building small modular robots, I had to sit next to the robot building them, taking apart the modular robots and putting the components back on the table. Oh, so, you're dismantling so, its babies next to it. Yeah, so the last month before my master's thesis submission was mostly me sitting in the lab taking apart robots that my master's project had built so that I had enough components for it to build more. So wow. That is absolutely ridiculous. And that also has like a haunting overtone of the chicken nugget industry. <laughs> Huge thanks to my amazing guest this week, the irrepressible Charlie Hausigo and the encyclopedic Charlie New. It's been truly wonderful having you both on. Thank you so much. And thank you to you guys for listening at home. If you've enjoyed this week's show, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time. I won't be here next time. (laughs) Well, you'll be on Mars, Charlie, setting up a colony there with your own robot (laughs) army. (laughs) 